0: and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey listeners, before we get to today's interview, I want to tell you about an exciting development. Grief Out Loud recently partnered with BetterHelp. Have you heard of them? They provide online counseling and support with licensed counselors via video, phone call, real-time chat, and messaging. When BetterHelp reached out to us to ask if we wanted a partner, we thought, well, we better try it before we recommend it to you. So a few weeks ago, I signed up and got connected to a local counselor. It's been great. You know how when you try to find a counselor, especially in the before times, it took a lot of work? When you do finally connect with someone, you might have had to trek across town or even to a different town, navigating traffic and scheduling. With BetterHelp, I got connected in just a few days. The scheduling was super easy, and the commute just required me to walk across my house to a different room. If you're needing support and counseling, give BetterHelp a try. You can sign up using our specific Grief Out Loud link. It's betterhelp.com forward slash grief, and you'll get 10% off your first month. So once again, it's betterhelp.com forward slash grief. Okay, here's today's interview. You've likely heard of the term anticipatory grief. It's used to describe what we might feel when someone we care about is dealing with an advanced serious illness. It's also a term I've mostly avoided as it seems more accurate to say the grief we feel anticipating the death of someone we care about. Which, given that it's a sentence, isn't as catchy as anticipatory grief. I avoid that term mostly because I don't think what people feel leading up to someone's death is an anticipation of grief. It is grief. The grief that comes with watching someone's physical decline knowing that the illness is likely to shorten their lives. It's also the grief we feel about the changes that come with caring for someone with an illness, the ways big and small that daily life shifts. When someone has an illness like Alzheimer's or dementia, there can be so many ways that we lose them before they actually die. For Brianne Griebel, whose mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's at the age of 62, there was a lot she anticipated losing but most especially was the moment that her mother would no longer recognize her. A moment that would signify the loss of their shared history, of knowing each other, as they'd always known each other. When that moment eventually happened, it turned out to be very different than what Brienne anticipated. This realization became one of many for Brienne as she started to shift the way she thought about her mother's illness and also her role as her mother's caregiver. These realizations led Brienne to writing, And writing led her to publishing her book, Love Doesn't Care If You Forget, Lessons of Love from Alzheimer's and Dementia. Brienne writes about a new way of understanding, capital L, love, and how that love is what's left when you lose everything you once knew to be true about yourself, about another person, and about the relationship you share. Brienne, thank you so much for coming on the show and being part of Grief Out Loud today.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's I'm, I'm very happy to be here. And, and listeners,
0: this is sort of one of those grief out loud moments where Brianne and I were originally scheduled to record at the end of July. And we had been in contact and we had questions ready to go. And then you emailed me the morning that we were going to record to say your mom had started the process of dying from Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's. And so just wanting to take a, a moment to acknowledge that where we were when we wrote these questions out is a very different place than where you are right now.
1: Yeah, two different kinds of grief.
0: So let's kind of start more at the beginning then of your mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's at the age of 62, about five years ago. And You were there with her and your dad when the doctor delivered the news. What do you remember about that moment?
1: Well, um, you know, she had been we had noticed that things were um, kind of off with her for a while. Uh, I was living in Los Angeles. They were living in North Idaho, and I had come up to spend some time with her. It was supposed to be like eight weeks. It turned into four months trying to figure out what was wrong and Alzheimer's runs in the family. So that was somewhere in the background of a possibility, but you know, you have your fingers crossed that maybe, Oh, it's a vitamin deficiency or um, she's not getting enough sleep or, you know, really hoping. So we, I spent months with her going to various different doctors and trying to find something that was, that had a fix that had, you know, she could change her lifestyle or uh, take a few pills and, and everything would be okay. But that did not happen after months of different doctor's appointments, we finally went to the neurologist and uh, he, you know, Alzheimer's is one of those diagnoses that they don't, there's no actual definitive test. It's basically like, look, we've tried it. Like it doesn't fit any other problems or issues. It's, you know, she has very specific cognitive issues. That's indicative of, indicative of Alzheimer's. It was a very surreal moment. It was something my mom feared her whole life because she had watched so many of her relatives with it. And I was just trying to take my cue off of her. Like I was looking at like, at her face, like her expression, her, and she just kind of had this blank look. And I don't know if it didn't register because some things at that stage were just registering it very well or if it was shock or if it was... I remember we asked a few questions and then we went to the parking lot and got in the car and drove and had lunch at a Chinese restaurant (laughs) and nobody talked about it. Nobody mentioned it. Nobody said, how are we feeling How, Like, what do we do with this? And then unfortunately that very afternoon I was driving back to Los Angeles because I, at the time I was with my now husband, he was then my boyfriend and he and I hadn't seen each other for ages. So the only day we could get a neurologist appointment was the day I was leaving. (laughs) Mm. So yeah, so I had to leave her with that information and it was probably another several months before we actually kind of went, okay, this is what we're dealing with. This is what we have on our plate now. It was just shock. I mean, I, I when I met up with my husband, I remember that and I just bawling my eyes out. <laughs> like It was finally like, okay, I need to let this land somewhere. So I was able to kind of let it out with him, but I just... I didn't know how I was supposed to be with her. I didn't know if I should acknowledge that this was a really crappy diagnosis or if I should try to put on that brave face and make not make her more uncomfortable in case she's feel like there was a whole lot of winging it <laughs> <laughs> and
0: and not getting a lot of information back in that at least in that moment from from your mom or your dad. and And then over time, as things did start to progress or or sink in in a different way, what kinds of conversations were you able to have with your mom about her diagnosis and prognosis?
1: So my mom, um, I think, I forget that there's a name for it, where some people know they're aware that there's an issue, anosognosia, I think that's what it's called. Some people are aware that they're not aware, like right there, they, mm. they know something is wrong, they know something is missing, and some people don't have that recognition, And my mom fell in that category she didn't know that things were wonky and that she was forgetting things and misplacing things and there was never really a moment where we talked about it because in my i I, I feel like my father and i talked about it and that was good i'm glad that we could acknowledge he and i could acknowledge that we could talk about her care and what was going on and but with her i i think i kind of I don't know if I consciously made the choice, but I think I, I th- it was just like, well, when I'm with her, I'm going to just be with her.
0: So different than from, and maybe not all the time, but different from a, a, another illness, say like cancer or ALS or some other progressive disease that someone has where cognitively they're still very present, at least at the beginning to be able to have those conversations with them.
1: Yeah. You know, there's, there's, um, blessings and curses. In many cases, until I'd say probably the the last year, I'd say the first several years, that was actually that she was not aware of what was happening was good for her. It was harder for us than it was for her. Mm. And actually, there was this actual beautiful phase for about, I want to say maybe a year, year and a half after the diagnosis, where she was happier because my mom had been my entire life, she's just like a worrier. She's like, she's always concerned about everything and and worried and for everybody's safety. And and, and as the Alzheimer's progressed, she didn't remember what to worry about. (laughs) She didn't know she had concerns (laughs) or things. And so in some ways she kind of became more at ease for at least a while that that shifted as the the disease changed. But um, she was more into, she was more present really Cause you know, she was forget she didn't have an ability to really think about the future too too much or the past too much. And so for a while there, you know, we would go on walks and she would just be like, Oh, just look at the, look at the trees and oh, isn't that beautiful. And it's so, and, you know, we I remember we were on a walk and we stopped for 15 minutes so she could watch a trail of ants and she was fascinated by them, you know, in hindsight, I'm like, Oh man, that was a beautiful part of the disease. <laughs> Cause it got real ugly. <laughs> mm.
0: So there was this window where you got to, be with a side of your mom you didn't really get to see growing up where the anxiety and the worry wasn't the the forward facing part of her personality all the time
1: exactly which was which was really interesting like as I was trying my best to be present with what was happening there was a part of me that kind of like she was teaching me how to be with her in a way so i was like well gosh she's not worried about anything right now so why do i need to be worried about her right now that did a lot for me (laughs) throughout the whole journey as i watched her change and become somebody different i knew i couldn't hang on to who she was if i was going to you know get this get through this and with some sort of (laughs) intact in some way so everyone grieves differently
0: and everyone responds really differently when major life changes happen or tragedies or health crises. And what did you find yourself turning to or responding, particularly at the, the early stage of your mom's diagnosis and her illness?
1: Um, you know, I think the first it uh, was probably denial. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, because it's it, it's not an unfamiliar experience for my family. Like her grandfather and grandmother both had the had Alzheimer's, and then a few of her aunts. And so, I was aware of what was coming, but at the same time, well, well, mom won't be like that though. And then I I I, I went from like denial to like extreme acceptance extremely quickly <laughs> of of like oh this is where we're where we're at this is this is how it's going and i feel i actually became this experience has made me deeply spiritual which is is interesting cuz i was never this kind of spiritual like i was before this experience with my mom but it was such a profound experience. Like if you kind of are present for this kind of really challenging experience, I feel like there's no other option for it to, but for it to change you. Surviving those changes, you have to look for something other than what's right in front of your face. There has to be something else that steadies you other than the situation, other than the circumstance. Otherwise it's just gonna beat you up a whole lot harder than, than it already will you know, accepting the physical circumstances, but still wondering well, what else is there other than this horrible situation.
0: And you really delve into that in your, in your book, Love Doesn't Care If You Forget, which was pretty spellbinding. Like I remember sitting down, you sent me a copy of it, and I think I read it and Four hours, like I just tore through it really quickly. Um, So, listeners, I'll put the link to it. Make sure you get the book. What helps? It's a short book. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) it's a nice, sweet read. (laughs) Short read. My pandemic focus span, attention span, is pretty short right now. So it was impressive that I could, (laughs) even for a short book. In that book, it really feels like an uncovering and a developing of this spirituality that you've talked about and you talk about the five lessons that you learned from your mom and caregiving for her. And, and each lesson is grounded in, in the concept of love, like love with the capital L things like love doesn't care if you forget or love doesn't love's not personal, which is like, what, <laughs> you know, people are like yeah. trying to wrap my mind around that. Like, what do you mean? It's not personal. So how do you define or understand this concept of capital
1: L love? Um, Yeah because I dive in, in the chapter, love isn't personal. We have an idea of what love is. And the funny thing I learned from my mom is like, you don't really know that you have an idea of what love is until life takes that idea away from you. Um, I didn't realize that when it came to my mother, what I was basing our relationship on was things that I thought would be constants. Like, that she would know who I am, that she would know I was her daughter, that we would have a shared experience. Like we would have memories, that we would have all this stuff and that would be our connection. That would be the, the basis of everything. But life took all of that away. She didn't know my name. She didn't know I was her daughter. You know, I was just like anybody else in the room as I kind of was going through this experience with her, it took me a while to like, I knew I was experiencing something very deep and very profound, profound, even through extreme grief. Cause there was some deep suffering through this experience. But I always had this, I'm like, there's something else here though. There's something underneath. And the way I talk about it now is like, love is what's left when life takes away everything you wanted. Like that's to me, love is love with a capital L is the ground floor. It's the thing that holds all of the stuff that you want and don't want. And it's it's, you know, I, I have this vision of like some of cupped hands, and the experience is inside the cupped hands. The good, the bad, the the beautiful, the ugly, the things you want, the things you don't want, and like that's and that's that's all beautiful and chaotic and all that. But something holds all of that so that it can be experienced. And to me, that's capital L love. And when I kind of could wrap my head around that and put words to that, it was so comforting because then it didn't matter how hard the grief was. It didn't matter how much life was taking away from me when it came to her, like something was still there. And actually that capital L love became more apparent the more that I got stripped away. And so there became like this saving grace through this really crappy experience.
0: One of the things that you really, you wrote about dreading, like if you look at the cupped hands and you think of all the experiences and those things getting pulled out one by one, the one you you talked a lot about was knowing the day was coming that your mom wouldn't recognize you and your mom wouldn't know your name. What was it like when that day eventually came?
1: Yeah, that's that's a whole chapter in the book. <laughs> um yeah, it was it was the, my biggest fear. Like before, I knew how bad it was going to get. If I had known all of the things that were going to happen, like her forgetting my name, actually wouldn't <laughs> even have been on the top ten list. Which <laughs> is, I just realized that as I'm saying that, I'm like, oh my god! Bef- before things got bad, I thought, oh, the worst thing that's going to happen is she's not going to know my name and she's going to forget me. Who boy was <laughs> was in for a whole lot more. But before that, before knowing that. It's an interesting question, how do you be with somebody when you don't exist to them? <laughs> you know, like that, I couldn't wrap my head around that. Like, I if I'm not Brienne, if I'm not Jaylene's daughter, who am I when I'm with her and who is she to me? And when that moment actually came, it was an extraordinary moment. Like it's. it was, I can only explain it by that it was a moment of grace. I couldn't have planned it, I couldn't have coordinated it, I couldn't have made it happen. But we just had this really beautiful moment, which I explain more in detail in the book, where it just didn't matter. She was scared and she was confused and I was a stranger in the room. And all I did was try to comfort her. All my thoughts about me and how, you know, how am I supposed to act and what am I supposed to do? Like I, I left the room in a way. <laughs> like Brienne, who had all these worries and concerns and insecurities left and something else like that, that L, you know, capital L love showed up and just comforted her and told her that I loved her. And then we hugged and I still don't know how to actually articulate what that moment was like. I try in the book, but it was just the most beautiful moment. It didn't matter is all I know how to say. It didn't matter. It was just two humans in in one embrace. And it was, it, it was extraordinary. And that's one of the things luckily early on in this experience with her that carried me through in some of the the more difficult times. I remembered that moment. It's like, oh, I'm not there right now. And Brianne with all her insecurities is very present. And she <laughs> hates this and she's scared and you know she hurts and she's angry. But just that was such a powerful moment that a, a flicker of that memory was like, well, that still happened and it's possible at any other time.
0: So fascinating that the the thing you dreaded so much ends up being kind of the anchor that you could go back to for a moment of peace or a, a flicker of hope that there's a way to maneuver this time in with all the insecurities and fears and and the suffering that comes with it.
1: And it really transformed my the way I experience or perceive grief. I learned so much with my mom through this journey with her, but it's applicable to every aspect of my life now if the thing i thought was going to be so awful actually ended up being beautiful that it it changes everything now even when i have these moments that i dread like her death right when i was i'm like okay now the next thing on our plate is it you know we were we knew that it was coming her death was coming and i it was interesting it's like i didn't alzheimer's or any i'm imagining any terminal illness there's i feel like people people probably I know this is a common experience where you actually want death to come and then you have the guilt of <laughs> wanting that to come. And I I just remember thinking like, okay, the end is coming. And I thought I was actually more curious about what the experience was going to be than I was dreading it because I'm like, I've already had such a, a shift of that dread turning into actually something gorgeous that it was more like, I I didn't fear it. It was more of a, I, I wonder how this is going to go. Maybe it will be horrible. <laughs> maybe, but maybe it'll be beautiful. I don't know. And it was somewhere in between. <laughs> it's almost like you you got to a place
0: where you knew enough to know you could never know or predict how it's going to be. You can just be curious about how it's going to unfold.
1: Yeah, it's one of those things where you see it so clearly that you can't unsee it. It can get masked. It can get hidden. You know, that capital L love that I saw just seemed, now that that's like the ground I walk on. <laughs> it's like, even when I'm like, okay, this is a little unsteady, but I know there's something deeper underneath this that I'm just not seeing or I'm just not experiencing right now. Mm-hmm. But I'm not too worried about it.
0: Emphasis on the two, yeah. a little bit. Yeah, it's not, yeah. I, yeah, I want to be
1: clear. It is. I am not an enlightened human that just is like everything is all love and I'm fine and I never grieve and experience stress or so. So not true. <laughs> it just like I said, my relationship with those things is actually very much changed. So I don't. I wouldn't say I welcome grief. I don't think I would say it that way. But I'm okay with its presence. There's room for it.
0: And you spent you know 5 years in that place of grief of your mom having alzheimers and you've now been in the place of grief of her having died a little over than a little over a month and what feels similar what feels different what are you noticing now
1: it's a good question you know people were telling me you know who had either similar experiences or of you know yeah but when she passes it'll be It'll be it'll be different. It's a different kind of grief and it'll be really hard, even though you feel like you've accepted that she's going to die. It was kind of, again, one of those like, I'm curious what the grief is going to show up and look like. And I didn't fool myself to think like, oh, I've already been through the hard parts. So, you know. But so far, I, I'm fully aware that this, it's going to be waves and it's probably going to hit me out of the blue and stuff. But I have actually experienced a whole lot more peace than I thought I would. The first week or two, I would say, were very surreal, especially the day of and the day after. Very surreal, like I lived in a different reality where I just I, I couldn't connect to the physical world very well. I wasn't worried about that, but I was, just, I was just noticing, I'm like, I am aware I am in this room, but I don't feel like I'm in this room you know, making myself a cup of tea, which is what I do every morning. Like I was aware of like, I am really on autopilot. Like I know I'm going through the motions of making a cup of tea and drinking a cup of tea, but at the same time, I don't feel like I'm doing those things. But I would say after the first, after her service, really, we had um, a celebration of life for her um, two weeks after she'd passed. Since then, it has actually been far more peaceful than I thought. It would. And I think that might just be the relief of it being over because <laughs> it was so intense for five years, especially the last year it was so intense. I think my mind and you know, my spirit are just like, that's over. And I think, I don't know, we'll have to wait and see. I'm guessing as that wears off and the being without her becomes a different kind of normal, I'm imagining there will just be moments where I'll see something of hers and a wave of grief will wash over me. Or I don't know, we'll we'll see, but it hasn't been as, how do I say it? I would, I, yeah, It's just not like I expected. I'm not sure what I expected. I do have moments where I just... I've had guilt actually a few times pop up of like, did I care for her well enough? Did I do, <laughs> did I do okay? And on the one hand, I know I couldn't have done it better because you just can't expect yourself to do more than you're doing with something so difficult. But there were, there were definite moments of, that's usually a, a breakdown moment of like, for whatever reason, this little guilt thought pops into my head of like, did I do okay? <laughs> did, <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah. It seems like no one escapes that. You know, even folks who are, like, by that person's bedside every moment of the day, they manage to stay calm and collected and patient, and they still experience those moments of, like, did I do it well enough? Could I have done more? And, And I, I mean, I don't know, I don't understand the science behind that, but I wonder sometimes if it's just an automatic response to this person isn't here anymore, I didn't have any control over that let me review the things I feel like I did maybe have some control over and find some fault because then I'll know what happened,
1: (laughs) you know? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I learned so much that I had to go through the experience of any particular thing to know what I was doing and then in hindsight go, oh, I wish I would have known that before (laughs) so I could have done it, quote unquote, right, (laughs) In the beginning. And so I think, you know, even after she's gone, there's still a little bit of that like yeah, like you're saying, like a review of but at the same time, you can't it's like I logically understand though. You can't expect yourself to know something that you don't know. But there is that yeah, that little bit of that sneaks in. And you know, the hard part for me, this is like I would say one of the worst moments I have, like the truly one of the hardest nights I had. And there were quite a few we had moved her into a care facility last October. Cause my dad, I, I changed my entire life. I ended up moving back up to North Idaho became like, my dad was her primary caregiver and he was running himself ragged he was, I was like, we're going to lose dad before we lose her. Cause he was just 24 seven with her for two years. And it's a lot of work. So I came up to take over some of that over for him. And then I realized I'm like, gosh, even with two of us, this is, it's too hard and we're not specialized in this, and so we moved her to a care facility, and I was in her room with her one night, and the last year of her, she also had Lewy body dementia, which is a different kind of dementia, and it really drastically changed her personality. She became very aggressive, very mean, bitter, and cruel, and that, like, holy cow, talk about, like, that's not my mom. (laughs) Mom was the sweetest, like, avoided confrontation, and kind, and she became bitter and cruel. And I was in her room with her. She was super upset and very aggressive and calling me names. Just the look in her eye, like just thinking about it right you now kind of chokes me up a little. And I remember thinking, all I want right now is for my mom to say, hey, you're doing a good job <laughs> like, or it's okay. And that's the one person that can't give it to me. She's doing so far the opposite that, oh my God, it just hurts so bad. And I think part of that guilt now after she's gone, it's like, man, I didn't get that for five years, now I'm really not gonna get it because she's gone. If anybody has even at least a a, a decent relationship with their mother, you know, they always want that like, hey, you did good, or I'm proud of you, or thank you. you And yeah, I think that's kind of what sneaks up and it it looks for me, I think it just turns into guilt. I didn't get the confirmation that I did okay. So my mind's going to try to play tracks and, and see if I can find something.
0: Yeah. Interesting, right? That if you can't get it from your mom, rather than give it to yourself, you turn to hassling yourself. Yeah. Like it's an interesting <laughs> switch, right? right
1: yeah. It's like, thanks, brain. <laughs> thanks
0: for that. <laughs> the the other contextual piece I was thinking about is, you know, it is 2020, and your mom died in July, and we are still in the COVID-19 pandemic. And for a lot of families, that's affecting how and what they can do in terms of a memorial service or a funeral. And, and wondering if that was a piece for your family in honoring your mom's life when she died.
1: Yeah, that was a tough decision. We went back and forth. I really struggled with it. So, the, So we're in a very rural community covid didn't hit hard up here for better or worse i don't even know the attitude is a little more casual <laughs> cuz we people here didn't get to see any kind of horrific side effects from this not to say that people weren't cautious and safe and we had quarantine and all that stuff too but yeah i was still very like ah, do we don't we and my dad said so she's like well cuz when his father had passed too long ago my grandfather we had waited a year when a lot of family was already planning on coming up. So he kind of, he's like, well, maybe we, we wait until next year and, and do something for her. And I I kind of, yeah, maybe we'll do that. And when we were at the funeral home and the, the funeral home um, person, I don't know what her title is, the worker, I don't don't know what you call her actually, now that (laughs) I think about it, the one who was asking his questions and taking care of her final arrangements. And she asked if, we were going to have some sort of service and because she was helping us with the obituary, we still hadn't made a decision. And she said, well, I will say this. There is a family who did do one at such and such place. They, they don't regret it. They were happy. Nothing happened. So I looked at my dad and I just broke down. I said, I want to have a service. I really do. I want to have something. Um, I think it would have been too hot. Like, like I said, after her service, I found this piece. I I think if it would have been drug out for over a year, I think it would have been very different. But it's such a personal choice. But we decided to do it, and it was, um, you know, we had <laughs> indoor, outdoor, plenty of space, people wearing masks, hand sanitizer at every table. <laughs> uh, you know, doing our best, and you know, luckily, no cases or anything like that. So it turned out fine. But yeah, it was a tough call, and and I don't take that for granted because. It sounds weird to say, but through the experience, there are a lot of things that we were fortunate to have that I know a lot of people were denied. Like, cause she was in a, a care home, so we couldn't see her and go in, co- cause of course that um, population is the most vulnerable. So we couldn't see her for several months, except for through her window. We actually ended up moving her to a different facility. And after a few weeks, they lightened up their restrictions so we could see her outside. At that stage, she was really unaware. She was bed bound. So she was in a wheelchair. She didn't, her vision was getting real bad. So I don't know how much she was even aware that we were there, but we got to see her, you know, six feet away <laughs> with masks on. And and they did let us, when when they knew her death was imminent, they let us into the room and we were, you know, masked up and gowned up and everything. You know, I don't take that for granted because I know a lot of people are, are denied those kinds of things.
0: One and so many more layers to think about you know, it's like, when someone dies, there's already so much to think through and consider. And now there's all these additional aspects that have to be sorted out. And, and they're not sorted out, like, do we have it at this place or at that place? Or do we have, you know, programs in ivory or cream, not those kinds of decisions, but like, is this safe? Can we do this? What are the restrictions? And I just, you know, thinking about the folks like your family and others who have had to navigate having someone die during this time and and not having access to a lot of the automatic pathways that have always existed that, you know, you talked about those first couple of days after your mom died being kind of on autopilot. And I think about people who have gone bowling. And if you're not a very good bowler like me, they put the bumpers up so stuff doesn't mm-hmm. go in the gutter all the time. And, yeah. and you know, when we're in that sort of altered state after someone dies, there's the bumpers of ritual and routine and automatic things that sort of help us. And, and those are all up for question right now or are not as solid and, and reliable as they have been in the past.
1: Yeah. The COVID stuff along with my mom's disease, you know, I began to realize, I don't know if it's better or worse that there's not anybody to blame. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, the disease is like there's like, I was so angry at times and I had no outlet for that. Like I had to be angry at life itself. <laughs> there's nobody I could punch, or, um, you know, and, and with the COVID stuff like that, that week, I couldn't see her for three months during the last months of her life was so frustrating, you know, because from the time I saw her last until we were able to see her outside, um, when I left her, the last time I saw her, she was still verbal. I mean, her communication was pretty wonky, but she was verbal. We could ha- we could carry on. She would like, I would say something. She would recognize I'd said something. She would say something in return. But because we weren't there with her every single day like we had been, her verbal, sk- verbal skills just disappeared in those three months. And of course, they were going to anyway, just because that's the nature of it. But it's like, oh, those were precious moments that I didn't get to have and it's nobody's fault (laughs) you know it's tough it 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 really makes you have to you have to give up control you have no other choice unless you like if if you cling on to like blaming or just getting caught up in that it's nobody's fault it brings you down even further so it's like this was like a, a huge lesson in giving up what I can't control. This is not my fault, nor is it anybody else's fault. There's nothing I can do about this. You have to just release control.
0: Are you going to write a book about that? Because I need to read that book. <laughs> I mean, your other book, there's a lot for me to learn, but that book I really need to read. And it makes me wonder, you know, it's like reading your book about the five lessons of love. And it might be really easy to, to read that book and talk with you and think like, oh, well, you've got it all figured out. And nothing's really hard. And I know you've mentioned already in our, in mm-hmm. our talk today, like that's not hundred percent true, but how do you sit with having had so much uh, learning and understanding and, and moving into these places that are really scary for a lot of people and also like making sure there's room for you to, to be in the muck and in the hard
1: parts? Mm, that's a great question. Um, here, here's what I tell people. I'm like, I can tell you unequivocally, I am an expert in my own experience. (laughs) I'm not an expert in anybody else's experience. You know, sometimes it felt like I was drinking from a fire hose, (laughs) just good and bad, by the way. And I kind of go back to that first moment with my mom when I thought it was going to be the worst moment of my life. And it actually ended up profoundly changing my life. I think for me, I I think if I were to write that book again, I would add different lessons or word things differently, but there's a huge amount of allowance that she granted me through this experience, allowing the experience to happen as it's happening, allowing grief if it's there, not pushing it away, allowing anger if it's there, not pushing it away. It seems to me that the better I got and get, by the way, um, because I'm not a a pro at this, (laughs) um... (laughs) But the the more I can just be like, okay, this is where I am. This is what's happening. Like if it's a horrible situation, if it, here I am with grief, here I am with suffering, here I am with pain, here I am with anger, it burns up really quickly. It feels like for me, again, this is my experience, like it burns hot, but fast. And then on the backside of that is a, is a relief and a peace and then a clearer seeing and then when joy does show up it it actually it feels like it shows up cleaner than if i'm still clinging on to how much it sucked or sucks (laughs) you know yeah i was actually i had i was talking with one of my mentors and he was kind of asking me you know how he's like how did you manage like learning how to care for your mom and i'd never said it this way before but after i said it i'm like i need to remember that i was like i figured it out awkwardly with grace (laughs) And I'm, I'm sticking with that. Like <laughs> uh, I'm seeing things and figuring them out and being with them awkwardly with grace. And there's just a lot more room for grace in my life these days. Like the grace is the space that allows all of the messiness to happen. Cause there's still plenty of messiness and there always will be. I'm not trying to tidy my life. I'm trying to live it and living it's good and bad. And it's, beautiful and it's chaotic and it's it's all of those things it's the life is in the living it's not in the managing
0: yeah and as you were talking I was thinking about this idea that if we if we're able to acknowledge whatever's happening fear grief anxiety and you talked about how that like burns it up faster in that acknowledgement and then when joy shows up as it does there it shows up more cleanly and i was thinking too like it shows up with more space because if we aren't acknowledging the grief the anxiety the loss of control it rents out all the space and the and so there's no there's no room left for anything else to come in and but we're still not acknowledging it so we're like why don't i feel good it's like oh well the room is full but it's full of things yeah. we haven't you know directly engaged with yeah so that's i love that awkwardly and with grace and if listeners want to connect with you more. I mean, they can get your book. Love doesn't care if you forget. But if they want to, you know, sidle up next to more awkward with grace, what are some other ways that (laughs) listeners can be uh, in touch with you?
1: Yeah, um, I have, I actually created a new website um, called loveanddementia.com. That's actually for the stories of dementia, not just about me and my mom, but I actually created it for other people to share as well. And I'm really happy with it. Because I know for me, Sharing my mom's journey was very cathartic for me, and then also hearing other people's stories is a reminder like I'm not alone. <laughs> I'm not the only one who's experiencing this. I'm also on Facebook and social media, just at Bria and Grebel. And you have a podcast too, right? I do. It's it's temper. It's on pause. It's uh, with uh, my friend and colleague Mer Monson. Then again, what do we know? It, which is kind of that we've seen some things, but then again, like we're not we're not. Who are we? We're only experts in our own experience where we kind of talk about these bigger life themes. I love, that's kind of my thing now. I just love talking about bigger life themes and she and I just kind of get together and have an interesting conversation, throw it online and call it a podcast. <laughs> I feel like I do the same thing every time I press publish
0: on one of these episodes. So, so even though it's on pause listeners, you can still go back and listen to the previous ep- episodes, um, so I'll link to that in the show notes as well. So the website, book, uh, and the podcast—that's on pause for now, and hopefully, will be coming back around. Brianne, thank you for reaching out to me, tell, mm. sharing your book with me, and and coming on the show today to have this conversation.
1: Oh, thank you so much, and thank you for for doing these. Um, I think it's it is one of, like grief is one of those things we tend to shy away from. We are awkward around it with other people's and with our own. And so I'm so happy that your podcast exists that gives people just a, the, the recognition that grief is not awkward or bad or that it, well, I think, I think what your podcast is doing is, is giving grief breathing room for people
0: hmm.
1: and and thank you for creating it.
0: Well, and I think like, huh, oh, sometimes it is awkward, but we can be awkward together. Yeah, so that's that true. makes it
1: feel slightly it's less like, awkward. It doesn't need to be awkward that it is awkward. <laughs>
0: Uh, Thank you so much. thanks again and listeners out there thank you for tuning in and being part of our community if you want to reach out to me and let me know what the show means to you you can reach me at grief at dougie.org and if you are interested in supporting the dougie center or grief out loud in our work you can uh, go to our website dougy.org forward slash grief loud there's a large blue button at the top that says donate now so you can just click there um, and we welcome any support that you might feel drawn to providing so thanks again for listening and we hope you'll join us again next time.